Welcome to Ideas Matter. This episode features the eighth and final talk in our series of lectures and book club introductions that have explored the theme Psychology and Democracy. The podcasts in the series were recorded at the Academy, the summer school organised by the Battle of Ideas charity. Previous episodes have reflected on topics such as how ideas on the individual psyche came to be applied to society and culture more broadly, theories on psychology of crowds, and also the development of thinking around subjects such as behaviourism and unconscious desires, all with a view to understanding them in the context of contemporary culture, politics and society. In this episode, we draw many of these themes together in the lecture Scientism and the Manufacture of Consent, Then and Now. The lecturer is Professor Frank Ferreira, sociologist and social commentator, and the author of more than 20 books, including most recently, Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries. What I like to do is to go back and forth in history a little bit, mainly because what I'm really interested in doing is to try to capture a phenomenon um, that doesn't really have a name as yet, uh, a phenomenon that perhaps I could call uh, an ideology without a name. Um, It was brought home to me that other people are struggling to give this something a name. When I read a a short little uh, sort of set of sentences by the essayist, American essayist, Wesley Yang, who last week talked about what he called successor ideology. And in the way he talked about successor ideology, he basically was trying to talk about this very bland set of ideas that are in the air that dominate the way that people uh, sort of lead their lives. They're almost effortlessly uh, sort of uh, pervade the media and public life and lead to a situation where almost from one second to the next, millions of people will talk the talk. They will say the words that is expected of them. Millions of people from businessmen to political leaders to leaders of charities, all of a sudden uh, last week or the week before will take the knee or they will swear that they've always been supporters of Black Lives Matter, millions of people that can barely spell the word race or racism uh, suddenly develop extremely strong views and almost uh, indicate that this is uh, emotionally quite significant for them. And what I want to kind of unpick and and, and explain, why is it that there are uh, these kinds of reactions that have been going on for some time? Because, you know, we don't live in an age of ideology, right? We haven't got... uh, communism or liberalism or anarchism or fascism. We haven't got a a clear set of political ideas, a system of ideas that uh, have an authoritative status within our society. There is no uh, sort of uh, movement afoot, as far as I can tell, that's got a a clear coherent doctrine to which people are attached to. But we have, nevertheless, you have something that's in the air that kind of uh, Uh, plays a really kind of uh, dominant role, uh, a silent uh, sort of uh, invisible ideology. And in my work, I kind of going back to the beginning of the 20th century when elements of these things begin to kick in, you you can really begin to see that there are two strands 
that are afoot in the early 20th century, one will become crystallized in a kind of social engineering, technocratic, expert-led, evidence-based kind of politics of today. And the other strand eventually uh, sort of flowers and flourishes and becomes what we see very much as uh, identity politics. But they exist in parallel, often they don't meet. And what I want to explain is how a number of different strands have come together and uh, you know, sort of created the, the situation that we have today. Uh, myself, uh, sort of, uh, I'm not really comfortable with, with giving it a name just yet, but just to kind of anticipate, at the moment I'm, I'm in my own work, in my own note-taking, in this book that I'm writing, I'm calling it moral engineering, not social engineering, but moral engineering, because it's really about the uh, attempt to influence the moral outlook and the moral imagination of a public that has got no access to uh, publicly recognizable morality, where morality itself is often decried as being old fashioned. But nevertheless, it is, I think, a kind of moral engineering uh, that has kind of kicked in over a period of time. Um, I think that it, it is interesting to recall that uh, psychology, which uh, Jacob was talking about earlier on, actually emerges out of moral philosophy. I think moral philosophy was the traditional way in issues with which issues that we call psychology today were discussed. But at a certain point um, over the 19th century, you can see when you, when you read the first psychologists, they're all at one feet in moral philosophy, another foot in, in psychology, and then gradually uh, psychology detaches itself from moral thinking. And indeed, psychology begins to pride itself in being self-consciously anti-moral, anti-traditional by the time we get to the uh, 20th century and acquires a different, a different kind of dimension to it altogether. And it's well worth noting that psychology, if you read, for example, the American psychology of the interwar period, is self-consciously uh, utopian. They all have a utopia that they want to create uh, with, with still at that point fairly strong moral uh, impulses to them. One reason why this is a very difficult subject is because you all learned about communism, about liberalism, about fascism, about democracy. But what you haven't learned about is a movement that hasn't got a name, but which nevertheless has got, uh, has got political parties attached to it. So for example, I think there are three interesting examples, uh, three interesting movements that first begin to experiment with the ideas that are around today, uh, albeit in a very kind of basic form. The three movements that I think are particularly interesting is the new liberalism of Britain, which kicks in the late 19th century, and which in a sense reacts to the old liberalism and adopts a fairly state-oriented uh, form of, of social reform, plus uh, uh, is also immersed in science and social engineering. So you got the new liberalism occurring in Britain. In America, you got the progressive movement, what's called progressivism, which uh, uh, kind of really kicks in in the, in the late 19th century and acquires tremendous momentum in the first uh, 15 years of the 20th century. And uh, most public figures that are, are important become attached to it, which is entirely and self-consciously about social engineering, about using the 
mechanisms and the methods of engineering to displace politicians. I mean, prog progressivism is about self-consciously using experts and engineers and scientists in place of politics. It regards politics as very conflict-related, something you want to get rid of, and therefore it wants to create this neutral, uh, sort of uh, public-spirited, non-conflictual kind of movement into, in, into the domain of public life. And the third, I think, very interesting example is what I call Swedish, or what is called Swedish social democracy. Swedish social democracy is particularly interesting because they, are, they were the ones that uh, sort of turned socialism into a full-blown form of social engineering right from the very beginning. Uh, it's interesting to know that in Sweden, social democracy was the most, most aggressive and the most successful advocate of eugenics, much more successful than even in America and in England, uh, promoting eugenic policies as a way of changing people, uh, as a way of curing society. And I think what's interesting about Swedish social democracy is the almost effortless way in which their eugenic social engineering one day emerges as this very sophisticated form of, of, of the welfare state. You know, it's, it's the most uh, expansive form of welfareism that we have in the world that eventually emerges in Sweden. And all of these things, you know, kind of really uh, sort of uh, can be seen as essentially conveying very similar kind of ideals. Now, now what are these, uh, what are the key components of this silent, invisible ideology uh, that uh, has a, the capacity to depoliticize public life? It's very, very successful in being able to do that. It's very, very good at rendering people's, people passive uh, because it's able to uh, sort of displace public controversy and debates with uh, expert-led scientific kind of ideals. And it's very, very successful at, at depriving them of a voice. Um, I call this moral engineering uh, because when, it, you know, when social engineering emerges in the early 20th century, the engineering metaphor was widely used by everybody. So you had people talking about moral engineering. You have psychologists who call themselves the engineers of the soul. They were psychological engineers. John Dewey, one of the leading progressive liberal thinkers in the United States, talked about uh, schooling as education engineering. Uh, parenting you know, and socializing uh, sort of accomplishment were seen as also a subject to this kind of engineering. And at that particular moment, what you have is a situation where scientism, which uh, you know, sort of has been, you know, was widely discussed in that first 20 or 30 years, and an entirely kind of positive kind of connotation to it, uh, where scientism with its engineering ambitions becomes increasingly driven towards one form of engineering in particular, which is that of moral and psychological engineering. They're interchangeable. And it's interesting to note that from about the 1930s onward, social engineering is not really so much about building dams and about planning structures uh, uh, of institutions, but it is really about motivating people. It's about shaping people. It's about creating a new kind of uh, sort of person. I think the 
the, for, the, the, the emphasis of, 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 of engineering that, 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 that we're talking about, um, it's, very, it, it's very rarely spelled out explicitly. I think the only term within which moral engineering today expresses itself in a, you know, with great clarity, but at the same time, great unclarity is basically through the idea of raising awareness. I'm, I'm sure that all of you would have heard, been told about the need to raise your awareness at one time or another. It's a very interesting idea because it's unclear, you know, sort of what that means. Whose awareness are you aspiring to? Uh, it's unclear about what is the distance between where you are and where you have to be. And of course, raising awareness is essentially a, a psychological uh, sort of accomplishment that is designed, is engineered by individuals who already have a toolkit or a, or a, or a, or a structure about how you raise that. It's basically about alter, altering personality and behavior. Because in the 1940s, that psychologists, sociologists, cultural anthropologists all began to talk about something very new that hasn't been you know, seriously discussed before. And that was the fact, and, and Margaret Mead, the cultural anthropologist, who wrote a lot of stuff on personality, how you influence personality. One of the points that Margaret Mead made in the 1940s was that for the first time ever, we are now in a position, not just simply to help people or to cure people, we are now in the position to create a new kind of human being. We're now in a position to create a new kind of personality. And it's a question of how do you create a new personality? How do you go about doing that? Uh, how do you raise people's awareness? Uh, that becomes really uh, kind of crucially important. And getting back to a point I alluded to earlier on, in the case of, uh, uh, of, of psychologists, of, of, of sociologists, of social engineers, the emphasis becomes at that particular uh, stage in time is education, a kind of human engineering where, where education becomes devoted to essentially detaching people from their past, detaching people from their parents, family, and community, and creating a new person who wouldn't be uh, subjected and influenced uh, by what had gone on beforehand. It's almost like creating a year zero a year zero from which the social engineers uh, could kind of move forwards. And one of the interesting things is that when this begins to become a regular topic of discussion, and it was widely debated between 1940 and 1955-56, when this becomes a regular topic of discussion, there's almost nobody that's actually questioning it or opposing it. Even the churches, even church leaders, even conservative thinkers are either not interested in responding to this or are unable to respond to this. It's almost as if they're getting a free ride in the way that these ideas are being sort of kind of put forward. <clears throat> so you have, you have the beginning of this attempt to kind of raise awareness, social engineer, use children, and essentially what you are really kind of, what you are really going on about is this twin interconnected and related uh, sort of, sort of projects of re-socializing society 
and re-educating uh, the adult population. That becomes really quite important. Uh, Jacob, earlier I mentioned about the discussion around authoritarian personality. And one of the, uh, one of the things that occurred with the writings around authoritarian personality is that people that were associated with that research project were arguing that what you need to do, needed to do was to, in, was to develop a kind of therapy that could be used, a psychological therapy that could be used to re-socialize people, beginning with the middle classes, because in their eyes, they were the easiest targets. They were the ones that were most likely to embrace new kind of ideals. And then having convinced the middle classes of the importance of a, a kind of a raised awareness form of therapy, you can move on to the rest of society. And I think that's pretty much what happened. If you, if you look at the history between 1950 to today, you'll find that each generation after another gets more and more subjected to their awareness being raised uh, in accordance with the, uh, with the kind of script that, that's been given to them. Uh, so that by the time you get to the 1970s, 1980s, it is, it is pretty much uh, part and parcel of the social imaginary of, of the middle classes of Anglo-American societies. And what you're also getting is that gradually these sentiments begin to percolate from the middle classes to the rest of society. Although obviously it's done in a heterogeneous way because even today, you know, awareness or what's called being aware is unevenly distributed depending on your class base, your regional base, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and all, all these things that are kind of related to that. So that kind of, that kind of hidden ideology you know, sort of begins to uh, acquire more and more of an importance. And uh, relatively few people have been able to identify it. I mean, Christopher Lash uh, begins to talk about survivalism in the 1970s. Others are looking for other kinds of words to which to talk about this, but it hasn't got a name. And every time somebody tries to give it a name, like political correctness later on, or social justice warriors or identity politics, it's immediately rejected. Oh no, that's, 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 that's a made up name. We're not that. This is not really what's kind of going on. It, it all remains, you know, sort of relatively, uh, relatively uh, uh, inchoate and, and, and invisible for most people. So what happens uh, in, in the last 20 or 30 years, by which time you have, uh, after five generations, these sentiments have, have kind of become almost like second nature to a number of people is that this ideology is sufficiently strong so that it could, it can literally control the language and give words meanings that are almost the opposite to what they were originally. I mean, you take something like critical. Yeah, there used to be a time where the word critical had an honorable legacy. It actually meant to criticize, to question, to debate. Right? That's what being critical was really all about. Today, when you uh, see the word critical being used, like critical thinking, you know, we have children being taught critical thinking as if you can you know, basically make somebody critical by giving them a little booklet as to how you can become questioning. You know? And we all know that people aren't critical in the, in the, in the proper sense of the term or, or not really questioning in the proper sense of the term because somebody told them to do that. They do it because they're driven to that by something else, some other impulse in society. 
We have critical legal theory, critical race theory, you know, sort of, we have all these kind of criticals, all of which are the very opposite. Because what critical race theory tells people is not to be critical, right? To accept what you are told is the problem of racism. What you are told is, ah, don't be critical and don't, don't get involved in a, a debate and a discussion on racism. There's only one story that there's only one version of event and that's critical race theory. In other words, critical race theory is not particularly inviting to liberal race theory. They're not saying, or you can have a liberal race theory or a socialist race theory. It's basically saying that all those other theories are not a theory about race, they are just racist and, and that's all there is to it. So language itself acquires a very different kind of meaning to it altogether. And I think that what you, what you have is a situation where in these decades that I've described, you have on the one hand, the deep politicization of public life and the marginalizing of all the old ideologies. I mean, all the old ideologies that were around not that long ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, have become entirely marginalized. And what you have, <clears throat> it's a very interesting phenomenon. The more you depoliticize public life to the engineering impulse, the more you politicize private life, the more you have politics changing its meaning even. And this can be seen by the fact that you know, in, you know, there was a time when politics only had one meaning. Politics what, is what you did in the public sphere. With the depoliticization of public life and its, uh, and its uh, consequences, have you noticed how many different contexts the, the word politics is used? The politics of the body, the politics of fat shaming, the politics of pubic hair, the politics of tattooing your, I mean, everything is about politics that in the past would have had nothing to do with politics. And the most important shift that occurs in the, in, in the new usage of politics is the politics is personal. The personal is political. The private sphere becomes politicized. So as the public life becomes depoliticized because of the working of these, these ideologies, so increasingly uh, personality becomes the main side in, at which political debates and political discussions take place, where personality traits become increasingly political. And, and as you can guess what I'm getting at, at a certain point when the personal becomes politicized, they will eventually mutate into identity politics. And it's at this point, and in many respects, we are at this point in time where identity politics emerges as one of the most uh, successful products, your know, kind of progenies of, of this kind of ideology. Now, when that occurs, you know, with the identity, with, with, with the politicization of identity, at that point, the psychological element of social engineering acquires a, a, new, a, new, a, a, a new importance. It basically means that, in a sense, the, the psychological element encourages the medicalization of everyday experience. It leads to a situation where, with the medicalization of everyday experience, disputes and conflicts that occur within society easily uh, uh, not come with a medical diagnosis where you can dismiss people 
uh, as being ir you know, irrational or, or psychological, having certain kinds of psychological deficits. And it's at this point in time where the kind of crack psychology that uh, Jacob was, was referring to really becomes very, very important. Because uh, what, the, what, what, the, what, what the people, what the establishment that, you know, in a sense, uh, is the conveyor of, the, of this invisible ideology is able to say, is basically to argue, well, look, those people that voted for Trump or those people that voted for Brexit, you know, sort of did so because of a certain psychological deficit. And what is that psychological deficit that led them to vote for uh, some undesirable person? That psychological deficit is, the, is shown by the fact that they have voted against their interests. In other words, you know, when people vote for a particular candidate, they are not voting for somebody that they should be voting for. They're voting for somebody that they shouldn't be voting for because it's, it's an irrational act. It's against their own interests. And what you've got in this situation is a, is a, is a, is a new kind of uh, public uh, uh, sphere where it's no longer necessary or even desirable or important to argue and debate against those people that wrote that kind of vote the wrong kind of a way. Because if people vote the wrong kind of a way, it's not because they reflected on it. It's not because they, they've come to the conclusion that given their own rationality, this is the position that they should have. Those people simply are unaware of, of anything. Their, their awareness is very, very low. And therefore it becomes entirely pointless, completely pointless to have a discussion or, or a debate about them. And therefore, that's why you find that at the moment you have this tendency where people who you, with, with whom you disagree uh, are not people that are right or wrong or you're going to have a discussion with. These are people that you give a diagnosis to. You kind of give them a diagnosis of some kind of mental health deficit that they have as a, as a, as a result of that. So in that sense, what we find is... Uh, is, is, is through the medicalization process, social engineering and moral engineering changes psychology. So it's less and less, at least in this political sphere, because there's other kinds of psychologies, but in the political sphere, psychology becomes a, a discipline that's no longer devoted simply about curing people, but principally about changing them, altering who they are, and ridding the world of the attitudes and the beliefs that it decried. This, is, this seems to me to be a, a very important element. Now, finally, just a couple of uh, interesting, uh, interesting sides to this discussion. As I mentioned earlier on, both psychology had both a pessimistic account and an optimistic account of a, of a, of a human brain, similarly social engineering and moral engineering. There was a time of moral engineering psychology and social engineering were very utopian. They're gonna, they were gonna change the world. Everyone's going to become rational and we're gonna have this kind of paradise that will be created as a result of that. After the 1940s, that becomes increasingly more and more pessimistic. Decade by decade, you can see a kind of retreat to this sober, realistic kind of pessimism. I think one of the most interesting uh, side of this is in relation to the family. If you look at the contributions of moral engineers in relation to the family, 
uh, and psychology is the same. I mean, this is what psychologists were arguing in the 1940s, even in the early 1950s. They saw themselves as engineers who could re-engineer the family. They were worried about the fact that the family wasn't holding up, that there were all these strains that the family was experiencing, and they thought that they could, through marital guidance, through, through kind of mental hygiene and a, a variety of other therapeutic techniques, they could you know, rebuild the family on a sturdy foundation. So they were in the business of re-engineering this family in the 1940s and 1950s. And then what happens all of a sudden is the same people sometimes, but in many cases, they're the younger generations of social engineers draw the conclusion that the family cannot be re-engineered, that the optimistic view of the family was perhaps short-sighted and wrong. And increasingly, from that point onwards, they have a much more downbeat assessment uh, of what the family is like. And they, first of all, move towards damage limitation, where you gotta limit the damage that the family causes, particularly to young children, but also to the rest of society, to finally, when you get to the point where the family is seen as a, as a problem. You know, it's very much seen as a problem. And I think it's interesting that when you go on the BLM website, the, Bla the Black Lives Matter movement, it's not just about black lives. In fact, there's not, not that much about black lives. It's about all the other crap that I've been describing, including the fact that the, the, that, that the BLM on its website explicitly says it is against the nuclear family that it's, it's, against, it's against the hegemony, the alleged hegemony, which the nuclear family exercises over, over society and, and the way that cis normativity plays that kind of a role. And you can see here, just if you look at the family, this kind of shift that occurs from the positive utopian to the negative one. And that of course uh, is, is similarly reflected in the way that wider social questions, social issues uh, are, are, are kind of regarded. Okay, so just to conclude then, what, what we have is a situation where by increasingly focusing on the personal, by politicizing what the political is, by getting people to look within themselves, uh, both for the problems and to the solutions of society, where identity becomes the be-all and the, and the end-all, and where you have this strange hidden marriage between technocratic expert politics and identity politics, then of course, you also get back to consent. And the reason why I didn't stick to the topic of my introduction, which is the manufacturing of consent, is because with the passivity that's been created, you don't have to manufacture consent on a social level, but what you then do is you, is you try to raise people's awareness, individual awareness, by telling them to, not just to consent, because unlike Marcuse and other guys in the old days, the issue no longer is how you consent and that you should consent. These days, the issue becomes to teach you what consent actually means. In other words, now you have the infantilized self most vividly captured and symbolized by the consent workshops at universities where these poor 
biologically mature 19 and 20 year olds are shepherded into and are told, just in case you have no idea, what to do and what to say and what kind of signals to pick up on when you consent to something. In other words, we come to a very different uh, kind, of, kind of a ball game. And, in, in that and to that extent, consent is no longer an issue. But of course, you can never simply render people passive. You will occasionally get people reacting, kicking up. You will have very heterogeneous reactions to that. And I think the very fact that a lot of people kicked up against this uh, hidden ideology, this moral engineering, or what Yang calls successor ideology, as a result of the populist revolt, because that has occurred, it's precisely for that reason that moral engineering has come back with such a rich, friolic, hostile, almost totalitarian form uh, in the last uh, sort of uh, 18 months. Thank you. You've been listening to a lecture from Professor Frank Ferredi entitled Scientism and the Manufacture of Consent, Then and Now. The talk was given at the Academy 2020 as part of a series exploring the theme Psychology and Democracy. You can catch up with all the lectures right here on this Ideas Matter podcast, so do make sure and subscribe through your usual channels. The Battle of Ideas charity runs a number of projects including Debating Matters, Schools of Debating Championships, and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for young people to explore historical and contemporary ideas related to freedom. To find out more, visit our website, theboi.co.uk. If you value our work promoting public engagement with ideas, and if you can manage a donation to support us, then we'd be most grateful. Please just hit the donate button on the website. Thanks. Ideas Matter podcast will return soon with a new series of lectures looking at contemporary questions related to freedom. Thank you.